Rejoining the uh, pod uh, for a pretty sweeping conversation, I think. But before we get to that, Alex, fill us in on what's been happening in the news. So weed is legal, but not quite yet. But that didn't stop a whole bunch of New Yorkers from partying weed style in the streets yesterday, which was 420, the day before recording this episode. There were people trying to encourage other people to get vaccinated by handing out free joints if you had a little vaccine card. It seemed like a lot of uh, merriment. Uh, you, 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 can, you can possess weed now legally. You just can't grow, buy, or sell it. Right. Right. You can have up but to three ounces. But if it fell ounces. from the sky, <laughs> if it fell from the sky or somebody says, you got a vaccine, here's a joint, like, do your thing. You can't smoke it anywhere you can't smoke cigarettes. Right. But that, that does include weird rules like 15 feet from various buildings and stuff like that. Um, I think the biggest news of the week is that the Manhattan DA, Cy Vance, has now said that they will no longer, in Manhattan, prosecute prostitution cases. They're straight out trying to dismiss 914 open cases. And it's not just prostitution. It's also unlicensed massages. And they're also trying to dismiss another 5,000 cases that involve, like, loitering. So this comes a month after Eric Gonzalez, the Brooklyn DA, dismisses almost 1,000 prostitution cases, also vows similarly, which is a reversal from the last time he was on FAQ NYC a couple years ago, where he said he still felt it was the best thing to do to not decriminalize. I think that a lot of our DAs are are changing their position. And of course, earlier this year, we had the state legislature overturning the walking while trans bill, where you can't arrest someone just for appearing like they're soliciting or prostituting or sex working or whatever the term, both legal and cultural, should be. In other news, New York One came out with a big poll showing Andrew Yang in the lead with 22%, Eric Adams at 13%, Scott Stringer at 11%, Maya Wiley at 7%, and Undecided at 26% for the mayoral race. Harry, there were other things going on in that poll. Can you kind of break down for our listeners what we need to know about that poll? So Andrew Yang is not just winning He's winning on almost every set of terms. He's New Yorker's favorite candidate for every single issue, except for uh, crime, fighting crime, where he's tied with Eric Adams. So there are a lot of undecided voters. There's a real margin of error and all that, but there's not much time, and that's a pretty significant lead. Uh, The other striking thing, and we'll talk with the public advocate about this, is that Brad Lander, who'd hope to uh, sort of clear a crowded uh, controller's field and emerge as like the voice of a unified left is um, is roughly nowhere in this new poll. He's at 4% um, behind five other candidates. There's lots of time. Again, big margin of error. Things could change. But uh, it, it's another sign that, that the energy and political power that the left has uh, demonstrated in recent cycles – and particularly in 
races where they've been able to dedicate time and resources aren't having the same impact now. Maybe because of fears about what's going to happen after the virus at the Midtown and a rise in crime. Maybe just because there's a lot of more casual voters who are going to be showing up in this cycle. Uh, but but in any case, uh, something seems to be shifting there that's worth keeping an eye on. Uh, obviously, pending results in June and the primary. And there was a bit of a surprise about what's important to most New Yorkers, uh, ranking people who are concerned about crime way higher than people who are concerned about brutality and overreach in the NYPD. I, I think the way they had it there was who was concerned about crime and public safety, which was 40% of the city, second biggest issue just behind COVID, and people who were concerned with police reform is one of their top two issues, which which was down at like 10%. Uh, so that, that's a pretty big gap and one you wouldn't anticipate listening to the rhetoric from most of the uh, mayoral field, for instance, or from the current mayor, for that matter. So that is a perfect segue to our guest. Shout out to uh, to another regular FAQ guest, Scott Stringer who appeared on another podcast and had some kind words to say about this podcast. My wife and I are listening to a podcast. Now, it wasn't your podcast, but it was the Harry Siegel FAQ podcast, and she was yes. on. And we, we, we can't sleep, so I'm actually listening to this. Uh, joining us today is the public advocate of New York City, Jumani Williams. Thank you, public advocate, for coming on. So appreciate it. Always a pleasure. Peace and blessings, love and light. Thanks for having me on. Thank you for coming, especially because I just want to kind of cut through a few things. Just because the the mood and the tone of the city today is sort of kind of a mixed bag. So we had uh, the Derek Chauvin trial results yesterday in Minnesota. And obviously it reverberated in New York City. So Derek Chauvin's found guilty in all three counts. But it brought up a lot of feelings, I think, that a lot of New Yorkers had about Eric Garner and Officer Pantaleo and justice that was not served here in New York City. So can you just sort of give us a a brief on how you're feeling and how closely you were following the trial? Uh, You know, I hadn't realized how much my chest has been tight and how much trauma I was Mm -hmm. feeling just in general, but in this case in particular, and how much tension I was holding uh, you know, woke up, I think, with, you know, most folks concerned to scared. And, you know, it's hard to even dare to think, okay, we might get some, some accountability. I'm not even sure if you got justice, but we got some accountability until the, the guilty verdict came in. And now I, I like breathed. Oh, Jesus. Like it was just a, a sigh of relief that I didn't even, I didn't even know I was holding on to until that moment. But mm-hmm. then it was, you know, it's hard to celebrate because I think it shows how, how bad it is. This, this is the, the least that should happen based on what we saw. And the amount it took to get there is a remarkable amount of energy and pressure and fighting and battling uh, just to get that shows how much work it takes to do that and how much further we have to go. And remembering the Rodney King video and how many videos came after that and how many names and hashtags came after that and all the people you mentioned too many people to even name where there was no accountability at all. And so you have all that is kind of the bag of emotions. And then, of course, we added another name in Columbus, Ohio, even as that verdict was being played out. And I went to a press conference today for Kowalski Trawig here in New York City, where the NYPD said no wrongdoing was happened, even though they went to his house and killed him. 
Right. So, so you you reference Makia Bryant, who's the 15 year old who was shot in Columbus, Ohio, while the Derek Chauvin verdict was being read out. I mean, I think it's also interesting, though, because yes, I think a lot of folks have been walking around with a level of stress that they didn't even recognize they had. But I, I think a lot of mayors across the the country are breathing a sigh of relief because they were on pins and needles to see if there would be some unrest depending on the verdict, right? Um, We know that after Rodney King's uh, police officers were found not guilty, we saw uprisings across the country. And I think a lot of mayors sort of feared that. And Bill de Blasio came out and sort of, you know, said what Bill de Blasio says, which is that he's, he's glad that the verdict went the way it did. But a lot of New Yorkers are looking at him sideways in the sense that Eric Garner, uh, many people feel, you know, his family still hasn't received any sort of justice or accountability. So there's this disconnect between what happens outside of New York and then what's happening right here in our city. So how do you think we can move that needle forward with the NYPD and this lack of trust and this this lack of feeling safe for a lot of Black New Yorkers, myself included, who live in a city that doesn't feel equitable? You know, it's interesting. I think everybody was on uh, pins and needles. I think everybody was wondering what was going to happen if what usually happens happens and that there's no accountability or trying to figure out if there's one charge or the lowest charge. Like there's a lot of complicated, okay, what are we going to do if? I, I think it was hard to even dare to hope that all three counts would come back guilty. Um, so that that was, you know, pretty amazing to see. And I think what frustrates me more is that while people were concerned about, you know, the mayors across the city, about you know, unrest if it was not guilty, the remedy for them is not the work of actually having accountability and justice. The remedy is usually let's quell the unrest as soon as possible, as quickly as possible, with as mm-hmm. much force as possible. And that's not the answer. And that's what causes me the most frustration. If you really want to stop the unrest, you would do the things to stop the injustice that's going on in the first place and then try to address that. That's usually skipped over. And here in New York City, Rightfully so, people are trying to figure out, and, and I'm glad that mayor and commissioner, everybody leadership is commenting on what we saw happen. The question is, what are we doing about what's happening in New York City when there's direct control and oversight? And that, that's the part that's missing. And that's the part that people like, it's all fine and good. But as you mentioned, Eric Garner, um, Romali Graham, just yesterday, the Kowalski trolley, um, decision came out from the NYPD. The family didn't even find out from the NYPD. They find out from ProPublica, uh, as so often families do. And if you look at that video, not just the seconds that sometimes they show you the whole video, there was a failure of the city from the moment the call came in to when they shot the man in his kitchen. In his kitchen. It's just amazing, the remarkable failures and for the NYPD to come back and say, yeah, we're sorry, but nobody did anything wrong. Makes, makes makes no sense. And that's where the disconnect is. And that's what people want to see, you know, the courage of people to do the right thing, especially folks who come in riding that wave of we're going to make some change. And then when the political winds hit, it gets a little difficult and then it doesn't come in. You know, just in a, in a broader sense, I've come to the conclusion that while I support reforms, I support accountability more and transparency more. I don't really see anything happening until we redefine what public safety is, what it means to communities, and really be clear on what law enforcement's role is and is not in that public safety paradigm. I have a question about all this. Uh, as I think you've seen, 
there's a uh, there's a new poll out from New York One that's covering the mayor's race and the controller's race that we're going to talk about, I think, in a minute. It shows Andrew Yang doing distressingly well, in my view. He's not only winning by a lot, but on every single issue. He's New Yorker's top choice, actually, except crime and public safety, where he's tied with Eric Adams. Everywhere else, it's Yang. And this also asks New Yorkers what their top priority is for the next mayor. And the number one issue is COVID, which makes sense. And then right below that is crime and public safety. And then there's about 10 other things. And way, way down, just over 10% is police reform, which was striking to me and especially striking because there's been so much talk about this. You, you, you've been at the vanguard of this for years and obviously haven't been chasing this as a popular issue particularly. But with all these mayoral candidates talking about it, 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 it's notable to me that it doesn't seem to be what's motivating a lot of voters. And in fact, that their concern is shootings have gone up over this year and other things seems to be more about crime and disorder than about reforming the police. So I was interested in just hearing your thoughts about that. Um, by the way, there's another citywide race going on uh, that I haven't seen any polls on, but hopefully uh, I'd like those polls if we saw them. Because um, you, you are not running for office. You you are strolling respectfully to everyone else. <laughs> Anyone well, else. I will I will never say that. I take nothing for granted. I don't want to wake up. Uh, I try to, you know, take it serious until 901 election night. <laughs> um, but I appreciate that. I, I mean, I think it was the governor when he allowed certain bills to get passed last year, told folks they can go home now because they won. They can stop marching. I uh, don't forget that, even though he was the one blocking it to begin with. And I think a few things are happening. I think there's been some movement in certain places around, quote unquote, police reform. Even here, I think what, what sometimes is missed, even with some of the things the mayor has finally done, even though I see a lot of good things happening around funding gun violence in a way that should have happened, city, state, and federal, we're probably where we should have been six, seven years ago. And that's a frustration. So these things come out and everybody's like, yay, look what we did. And I'm like, no, we did what we should have done seven years ago. We should have been seven years ahead in these things, working them out, fixing the the the, the, the detentions and spaces that's not working, funding, moving it. Like, so we're so far behind. The other thing is we have been trained to believe that the answer to everything is police. So the answer to the, the crime issue is solely police. Let's just get some police out there. And so we're, we, 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 we're sometimes conflicted on that, especially communities who are sandwiched. They're sandwiched between very real street gun violence going up. They also are sandwiched between a response that very often is over-policing and its own police violence. And then if they dare to complain about the over-policing and police violence, they'll get under-policing. And so they, they can't even dare to complain about that. So it's, it's like a, a mixed thing there. But what I believe people are saying is that they want to be safe. We all want to be safe. What we need is the elected leaders to have the courage to say, okay, this is how we're going to make you safe. Yes, law enforcement has a role to play, a very real role to play. And we have to allow them to play it with transparency and accountability. But here's the other sections that have been missing for far too long. That's a difficult conversation to have. It's a difficult conversation to walk some people through. Fear does amazing things and allows um, just remarkable things and dangerous things to happen in a notion of, of keeping people safe. 
by the way, even if they are safe, but they have a feeling they're not, uh, these things can happen. And elected officials do very well on preying on that fear so they can get elected as opposed to addressing it in a real way. And that's the narrative that we have to change, not just here in New York City, but across the country. I love this because I feel like this is a great pivot to the mayor's race. Now, you know I have some questions and you know I have some thoughts. <laughs> so first things first, are you with anyone for the mayor's race? Have when I'm mayor, I'm go- no, I'm joking. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you heard it here first, folks. You heard it here first. FAQ. So, I mean, a lot of folks are disappointed you decided not to run for mayor. Um, but because you have not decided to run for mayor, unless you want to make some news right now, do you? We still got no. time. <laughs> yeah. Primary's I, not until June twenty second. <laughs> I appreciate that. It's, it's actually I'm always still amazed when people are saying you should run for this and that because I'm just me from Brooklyn, like with a, with a pretty big mouth. So I'm just amazed at that, and it's very humbling that people would want to see me in some of those positions. Um, but I, I'm not making news, and I also haven't decided who I'm, if or who I'm going to be endorsing in the mayoral race. Well, if you do decide to endorse someone, are you going to have, say, a ranked choice? You know, give us two or three or four candidates. Uh, I'm not sure. I've done a few. I've done a bunch of endorsements uh, across the city. Only one of them have had ranked, and that was the Comptrollers uh, one and two. The rest of them I haven't. Uh, I think ranked choice is is an awesome system, and we should keep it. It's very helpful for the. the I think the people that empower them. It's difficult on the endorsers <laughs> who have to uh, uh, rank it. And I think we have to we have to get used to doing that. But I'm not sure that I'll do that uh, for this race. I have a couple, couple of questions for you here. First off, if rank choice ends up effectively electing Andrew Yang, which I think it might, because he doesn't have to break 40% or any threshold, he can avoid a runoff. And that may make more of a difference than what people's second, third, fourth choices are. I, I think there may be some some interesting bank shot consequences here. But what I wanted to ask you about is uh, your controller's endorsement. Uh, going back to that poll, and I know you did a one-two there, right? Brad Lander, who was your top pick for controller, is running one, two, three, four, five. He's in sixth place at 4%. And I know politicians say the only poll I care about is election night. And all those things. But that's not where he wanted to be. And especially after you came out in support of him, um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez did, and so on. So I'm interested in your read and what's happening generally with that race. And and then I'm going to bring this over to some uh, council tea with other people shifting their endorsements mid-race and as the speaker gets involved and that sort of business. You know, it's, it's interesting with the rank choice. I, you know, it can go a different way. I don't think that... Andrew Yang wouldn't be in the lead or not have the possibility to win if we didn't have ranked choice. What's interesting to me is the people who have been screaming, yelling against ranked choice, who are going to now try their best to use it to prevent uh, the person in the lead from winning. That's the conversation I, I can't wait to see happen, uh, but that's, uh, that's just me. Um, you know, I think with the comptroller space, I'd be interested to see when the question was asked uh, before or after some of the endorsements. But also, it's interesting to look at it because Obviously, that's not where you want to be if you're running. But it also says a lot of things. You know, when you go to the plus or minus of error, you know, that that number, because so many people are close together, could shift considerably. Uh, when we look at Speaker Johnson, who everyone agrees, jumped in and, and kind of uh, took the lead there, uh, where uh, he is at 14 percent, 
And then you look at, which I was surprised, over 50%. I was, I'm actually more su surprised that there wasn't more undecideds in the mayoral, but in the comptroller race, the undecideds is huge. And so it said to me that although you're not where you want to be, if you look at the plus or minus uh, error, plus the amount of people who haven't decided, there's a lot of room there. And so this is before people have even hit the airways and uh, got their message in the mailbox. And so it's really good thinking to be who can get their message to cut across. And I think those numbers could change considerably. Uh, and as you mentioned, I endorse Brad Lander for my number one and Kevin Parker for my number two. And then, and then I did want to just ask you real quick about council members Chin and Rose reportedly, according to our friend Ben Max, uh, taking back the Brad Lander endorsement and lining up behind the speaker of the body they sit on and you used to, Corey Johnson, which just seems to me like a very complicated and interesting dynamic. And this follows, you know, the, the whole defund the police billion dollars push last year. Corey Johnson saying he was very depressed and, and consequently not running for mayor uh, in a period where the council seemed to be running itself and now feeling better having his mojo back and, and maybe in some ways using his government power. So the people who are switching positions are people who are, are very much within his sphere of power. And I, I'm sure you have some thoughts on that. I'm sure you want to share all of them publicly on this podcast. So I just want to give you that opportunity. I actually hadn't heard that. So um, this is the first I'm hearing of it. I, I, I haven't spoken to them, so I don't know. One, I just want to confirm that it's true. And then, uh, you know, I don't want to jump to what the motivation is or it isn't. Obviously, there's politics and politics. Uh, I think that's pretty clear. Uh, I can't act as if I'm holier than thou. Um, I think I do try to minimize them in a way that a lot of folks don't. Uh, sometimes it's, it's, it's hard to do so, uh, but I, I think I do try. I think I'm, you know, good in that, in that realm, although not perfect. I don't want to speak for uh, my colleagues until I can speak to them, find out what the motivation is, and, you know, confirm that that's actually happened. But, you know, I, I would hope that it's not because, you know, that's my number one pick, and, and I hope other people would endorse him as well. But obviously, you can make some direct connections uh, if that's the way it went. Are term limits for the council good, or is this just forcing this sort of crazy musical chair stuff, by the way? I think term limits are great. I think term limits that we have in the city are terrible. And I've always said that, one, I think there should be at least three terms uh, for council members, and it should be staggered. We don't, the legislature has a different function than the executive. So having the executives up at the same time as the legislature doesn't make any sense. And so uh, I don't think you should go past four terms, but I think three is a good number for the legislature. It's staggered. Everybody's not chasing the same job at the same time. And you can focus on the job at hand in a way that you can't now. And what people often say is, oh, well, we've asked this question a bunch of times. Uh, and it's just not true. We had a, uh, a millionaire billionaire ask a very specific question, which was, should everybody have term limits? And then that millionaire billionaire decided what that term limit is and put it on a ballot. Um, so the decisions were pre-made. There was no discussion about what the actual term limit should be. Uh, and there wasn't a discussion and differentiation between executives and the legislature. And so that discussion needs to happen because I don't think it's healthy for the government operation. I don't think it's healthy for um, the people of the city of New York. I think three terms for the legislature, two terms for the executive staggered. What it does do, again, is prey on the anger that people feel, many times rightfully so, uh, for the lack of movement and action sometimes in the government. And so it preys on that. And since I'm mad at the government, yeah, let's get them and do this. And I don't think they really have uh, the, 
the discussion that was needed for such a topic. So I want to bring this back to your race just a little bit more because you've been, I mean, running, <laughs> not strolling, running. Um, because, you know, you, you filled in with special elections and then you, you had, you know, to run for proper terms. It seems like you've been on the ballot um, for quite some time. And I know you've taken it seriously. And then, you know, you ran for lieutenant governor and now we're back. So And speaker. And speaker. That's right. <laughs> Can't stop, won't stop. You're like the James Brown of politics right now. Um, but as you go towards your voters, I mean, I know you don't have, from from my estimation, you don't have a very competitive race, but you're still taking it seriously. We get that. How do you articulate a vision to New Yorkers since you've been on the ballot, you've been in our collective imagination for quite some time? What are you telling voters uh, for them to take you in this race seriously? What are you looking forward to doing for the next four years, if and when you're successful? Uh, and what should we expect? And also, how does that strategy change depending on who gets to Gracie Mansion? There are quite a few people who have zero governance experience. Absolutely none. And then there are others that have some wild personalities. I mean, there are a lot of factors going on. So what's your vision? What's your mission? And how will that change, if any, depending on who gets elected uh, June twenty second slash November. You know, I have to say, I I um I wake up very often with a, a level of surprise that I'm a citywide elected official. So I still carry that with me because I was told that I was going to be limited in what I can do based on how I operate. I was actually told I was too principled. Uh, I won't move on certain things. And as I said before, I was I literally said, you know, you're too much of an activist. You got to fit in. You got to change what you're doing. And I said. The best elected officials are activists, so I'm not going to change. Uh, Ten years later, everybody's trying to show how much of an activist they are, which is which is interesting. So, I mean, who knows? This thing, this gig could be up in a couple months, and then you know, I don't think people realize that I don't want to lose an election, but I'm okay if I can lose fighting for people the way I think it needs to be fought. And one of one of the most comfortable days that I had was actually after the lieutenant governor's race. I lost, um, but I felt great. I had the most fun I had in a very long time going across the state, talking to people and raising issues and doing things I think people thought we wouldn't. And um, I know you and I have spoken a bit, but I was I was out the political game at that point. I was like, I did what I could do and I'm gonna do something else. And then the public advocates thing, that was the first time I ever felt drafted. It was usually me pushing <laughs> this one. I felt drafted. And so I'm, I'm, you know, I'm a little su- surprised at, at times that how far I was able to do with the message I have. But that message has been pretty consistent for the past decade, I believe. I got a follow up for you about this, if you don't mind. You've had a lot of success running in New York City, and you are a citywide public official here who's been quite principled on, on, on some of these things when that didn't necessarily seem advantageous. You also ran a surprisingly, to a lot of people, competitive statewide race that, that came up short. But no in money. New York. I. I <laughs> So I wanted to ask you what what your experience was running statewide, um, and particularly as a New Yorker and as a black man in a state that when you you leave the city is a lot whiter and where the fundraising environment is extremely, incredibly different. Uh, You know, I think this merges with what doctors ask. One thing I've I've seen and noticed, sometimes people respond to me differently than they respond to other folks who are saying the same thing. Um, 
which is they believe I believe it. <laughs> and so that sounds like a small thing, uh, but even the folks who disagree with me, they believe that I believe it and I'm really trying to do it because it's what I believe, not for political reasons. And as I mentioned, I, I, have, I wasn't able to raise any money, but what I did see uh, right as I was about to make the announcement, if I'd run for LG, was how connected the, the cities across and the municipalities across the state were around the same issue. It was shocking. That transportation issues were the same, gun violence, housing, sometimes transportation was in the shape of uh, the roads and not as mass transit, but, but they were still the same issues. And then how many people were looking at Andrew Cuomo and Albany as a source of money and frustrations was remarkable to me. And so the message, I actually said I wanted to be the public advocate in the LG's role. I was wanted to change that into more of a public advocate role. So we've been pretty consistent in showing that there has to be someone there who's gonna use the privilege they have as being an elected official to push even when the winds are tough. Forget about party affiliation. Forget about who has the power to do this and that. Somebody needs to speak up and risk. Like what frustrates me is oftentimes we'll bring up heroes of the past who risk their lives, but people won't even risk their seat. They won't even risk a title. And I really said, we got to come in and, and try to change that. I don't want to lose anything. I want to get what everybody else gets, but we have to risk that. And what I also am proud of having been able to show, I think people sometimes, you know, see the, the, the media clips and I'm at protest, but I was able to show that you can get a lot of bills passed. I can get a lot of funding to, and resources to places and still be the activist out there with the protest. Because people often say that they have to do these things to get these other things. And that's it's simply not true. And my, I hope that I and other folks, because it's not just me, but other folks who have been pushing back and accomplishing things are now beginning to show that there's another way to do this. And I believe that voters of all hues will respond to that. And we showed that at when we ran for lieutenant governor. The speaker was, was a little different because I couldn't speak directly to voters. That's a whole different machinations. I'm not as good in, the, in those areas, but I am good at trying to speak to people and explain uh, what I'm trying to do, why and how. And they've, they've been very responsive. I, I think people need that. What, what happens though is that people are just, I don't know why, I do know why. The easiest pathway is to work and build on people's fears uh, than to really try to knock that down and, and present something. And people just resort to what they know and politics has rewarded, I think, the worst in, in how we get to the positions we are. And I'm hoping that we can continue to change that and that uh, people who, uh, the voters would elect more and more people that, that sing a different tune. So, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think that your blend of protest politics and electoral politics has been a very unique space for you as an elected. Uh, my last question before we turn it over to Alex, who has a few questions for you, is, you know, obviously I'd be remiss. We can't have a podcast with public advocate Jumani Williams without asking about Mother Williams. So what does your mother think about <laughs> the state of play, not just with the mayoral elections? We need to just have her on, Harry, because clearly this is what the people want. We need to give the people what they want. Um, I, my mother will be very <laughs> happy to come on and discuss uh, the state of play. You can look at her Facebook at any point in time and all of her <laughs> thoughts will be on there. Um, and then she'll call me to talk about my grammatical errors and why I should not have uh, put certain things. Um, but I mean, I think she's like every other New Yorker who is concerned about what's happening. What's interesting to me, you know, that you bring that up, is people sometimes will point out things about me about, in the, you know, either where I live or I'm elected and I have this and this privilege. And they, they believe I'm, they, they say it as if I'm making decisions that are based on just because it doesn't affect me, which is just 
It's crazy. It would make more sense if my policies had changed over the years, but they haven't. And also my mother, where my mother lives, where my sister lives, the things that affect them. My, my cousin who's, who's, got a, who's going to train at one o'clock in the morning from end to end uh, from Brooklyn to the Bronx. These things affect them. I'm not going to support policies that are going to harm them or I think are going to harm them or harm any New Yorker. Uh, so it's always, it's always interesting. And, you know, who I am, once you meet my mom, it makes a, it makes a lot of sense to people very quickly. <laughs> it absolutely does. Is she endorsed anyone for mayor? Um, I don't think she has. My sister has posted something. I'm not going to say it here, though, because I'll get in trouble. But uh, okay. she has posted uh, who she well, will be voting for. Well, look it up. I mean, I will follow your mother and her lead and see where <laughs> she is, depending, depending. Um, Alex, I'm going to turn it over to you. Um, thank you. So going off a little bit about what you were talking about, the uh, police being kind of the answer, even today it's reported that at the MTA board meeting, uh, even though crime stats are down, a uh, big question in the meeting is just how can we get more cops in there or should we have more cops in there? So I wanted to kind of ask you this question specifically in regard to our mentally ill New Yorkers. I know since 2019, you have been advocating for an alternative dispatch completely to not even, you know, involve 911 in the majority of calls that have to deal with mentally ill people. Um, what do you think of de Blasio's Thrive program that doesn't involve the NYPD necessarily, but still uses the 911 call that's now in two zip codes, I believe in Harlem. I haven't been able to get any information on how exactly that's playing out, but where do you think the Thrive program, do you think it's going to be successful? Would you like to see that in the entire city? Is it something that even though it doesn't include that alternative dispatch number that you can... Um, see getting behind? You know, it's interesting, even with the MTA, and we should never negate where where crime is happening. I don't want to dismiss that. But we also, we have, you talk about mental health, there's been, I think, more suicides of people jumping even in trains and across the city that also aren't being addressed. And that's not a police issue. And even with the MTA, we should have a conversation. Perhaps we can even have more uniformed staff people there. Sometimes the presence of those things can change people's behavior. Why everything has to do is just instantly police, police, police. And we don't see the connection between trying to have police solve everything and the police violence that sometimes comes out of that. How we don't see that connection is sort of like the people who make these crazy assertions that guns have nothing to do with gun violence. Like We have to make those connections and then try to work through them. And for me, it's Never that there's no role for law enforcement. It's just that all roles aren't law enforcement. And so when we see what's happening with uh, mental health, my thing has always been they shouldn't be the initial people that come to assist for acute mental health crisis. There are times where most folks would agree we may have to bring in our law enforcement partners. But there's so many things that should happen before that. And we jump over those things and we jump over them and we get very bad results too often, and more often than not, it's for black and brown uh, New Yorkers. And so that's what I want to see happen. I think that 911 number is very important because right now people have a one-track mind. You call 911 and you get a very specific result. We need a number 
that gives us another specific result. I remember a few years back at a, a press conference, is actually with Vice President Eric Adams, we were dealing with uh, gun violence. Someone came, started crying, got on her knees and was begging us for help for her son. She was terrified to call 911 because she thought they would come and kill him. And so I don't think Thrive has worked up until this point. I think there are a lot of good things there. What seems to be tension is the removal of police from the initial response. And so everybody agrees up until that point. Um, and I often ha have conversations with the mayor where he seems to agree as well, which is great, but the implementation is always, how do we keep police in that initial point? We need to remove them from that initial point and you bring them in if and as necessary. But what we've seen is that that initial response with the police officer generally escalates. Even if the officer is not doing anything, the presence of someone with a gun and a uniform and the way they present is an escalating thing. Um, and we have to just acknowledge that. And one last question about that all. The Department of Health and Mental Hygiene seems to have resources available primarily for homeless New Yorkers. Um, and only there's only a, a certain percentage of homeless New Yorkers that are, you know, in need of housing and services. But a lot of the uh, more public incidents with New Yorkers with mental illness have been people who have had addresses either with family or whatnot. And, um, Th there seems to be no, not Thrive, not the Department of uh, Health and, and Mental Hygiene, and not even the State Department of Health seems to have any kind of resources for someone who doesn't have like an acute problem like housing, but does have major issues with mental health. And I wondered if uh, part of your program that I know is supported by NAMI and a bunch of other organizations that advocate for the mentally ill has a component to that that allows for supportive services for people who aren't necessarily in one of the categories that classically uh, have access to supportive services. So where all those groups and I will always agree is we don't have an infrastructure. We don't have the respite centers. We don't have emergency places for people to go when they need mental health assistance. God forbid you break your arm at one o'clock in the morning, you're gonna to go to the emergency room, you're gonna get service. If there's someone you love who has an, a, a mental health crisis, there's really no place for them to go. The biggest mental health facility probably in the country is Rikers Island. And that's probably not a good facility for someone to get mental health assistance. Where there's going to be differing beliefs, which is what no one wants to touch, but we have to, is what happens when someone has an acute crisis and doesn't want to get assistance. And that's something that we're going to have to really address because it's real. We can't just let it go out there. We can't say, well, we're not going to do anything. The state's not going to state. The city's not. Because what's going to happen is it always results back to the police, if anything, and they're going to go to Rikers Island. So that's not what we have to do. And we have to have someone who's going to step forward and say, this is what we have to do. And this is how we're going to do it. While we're doing that, that infrastructure has to be there. We have to spend funding to have, we do not have a functioning infrastructure for people who have mental health crisis. The one thing I think that, uh, and also who just have, may not even be an acute crisis. They may have a chronic uh, uh, issue that they have to deal with. Um, one thing that Thrive has done was help elevate an issue. That I think was good. Uh, but after that, we haven't really been able to fill the gap that's needed. And the pandemic has just made everything worse. It hasn't actually introduced any new problems that I'm aware of. It's just shown how bad the problems were before the pandemic and exacerbated them, whether it's housing, homelessness, 
people who need mental health services uh, and gun violence. Why we thought gun violence wouldn't go up uh, and plan for that is also uh, just strange to me. So, Jumani, th- thank you again for taking the time and joining us uh, to close us out here and, and circle back to some of what you were just going through and Alex was asking about. Uh, you're the public advocate. You've been a lawmaker here. Um, you haven't you haven't been an executive yet. And some you of the broad <laughs> solutions, we'll see, we'll see. Some 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 of the broad solutions that, that are expensive but important, like like supportive housing, uh, maybe like how we're implementing uh, Kendra's law. Um, but 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 there's not that much of a secret about what the problems are or what the answers could be. But in the absence, the short term absence of those answers, you have this question about what the uh, police should be doing. And to connect a few things here, I'd like to tie this in with with this rise in attacks on Asians and other anti-Asian hate crimes. In a bunch of ways, seems to parallel maybe a year ago, a wave of attacks aimed at, uh, it's been East Asians recently, um, a wave of attacks about a year ago that were mostly aimed at uh, ultra-Orthodox Jews. And so the question I have is, Without all these supportive services, when you're looking at often mentally ill and often deeply antisocial people, in both cases with long arrest records who are involved in these sorts of things, what is it that the police should or should not be doing? Are they handling this properly now? And what should their role be when you're generally not talking about the general populace, but really uh, uh, disturbed individuals who end up fixating on different other groups? You know, one of the problems is that we skip over that, that we don't have those other things. And then in the absence of that is where the police come in. And we just can't skip it over. Like we, we have to have those things because this is part of the problem. But we and don't. It's actually, but, but we don't, but it's which actually, is my question. It's actually, it, yeah, it's actually unfair to the police yes. and unfair to the community because the police don't want to be doing some of these things. And they don't have, all they have is handcuffs, guns, a baton, and something to write a, uh, a fine on. Those things by the way, are sometimes needed for acute situations. But when we rely on those acute solutions for complex problems, we're always going to run into problems. I'm going to answer your question in, in a second, but I always remind folks, you know, we've had takedowns in communities, and then you can have questions of whether those dragnets were too big, if it brought two people, we can have those conversations. But let's say that was a resource that was needed at that moment in time for sake of argument. Those folks, the police come back three, four, five years later because you didn't do anything else. And so this is my frustration. Like, we, I understand that law enforcement is needed, but it seems like we're stuck in the hospital at triage and no one will go to the back of the hospital where there's a bunch of doctors and some good tools that can be used. We keep going triage, triage, triage. But what I'm saying, and even with the hate crime, I think there's some uh, new things that are being put into place. There has to be accountability for people who are doing these crimes. The question is, what is that accountability? Now, the question is, what is actually going to change that person's behavior, and a person who's thinking about doing it. Harsher sentences doesn't necessarily change other people's behavior. And so this is where you say, okay, okay, you have something that's illegal, making it more illegal? <laughs> like, is that what's going to change it? So I don't mind if people say, look, we want to make sure our law enforcement is in a certain area at a certain time for a little bit because we feel a little, a little concerned. Like, that makes sense. But the problem is, you know, they can't stay there. How, how many how many cops do we need in this in the force, and how many places are we going to put them? Those are questions that people don't want to ask. They just more cops, more cops, more cops, more cops. And so I, I had a briefing with the police department. I am happy with what they're trying to do now. I'm happy because they're understanding that their 
resources can't be the only one, even in the, the, the hate crimes unit. Um, I think we have to even do some more conversation there. I'm happy there's funding going back to the hate crimes initiative that was cut from the budget with the city council initiative specifically to deal with hate crimes. Like what we do very often is cut non-police responses to these things and then increase the police department. Last year, we cut summer youth jobs in half. We cut the Department of Education. We cut the Department of Health and Mental Hygiene and we increased police. This year, hopefully it's gonna change because we got some federal money, but we are proposing a budget that cuts DOE, cuts the DYCD, and again, increases the NYPD. And that's the framework that we have to change. And when we begin to change that framework, we can address your question, but it, we can't skip it over because we always, in that question, it always leads to, well, since there's nothing, let's send police. And that doesn't solve the problem. We see people apologizing 30 years later for what they did in the 90s because it didn't address the problem they thought it was gonna address and it created more. Let's not apologize 30 years from now. Let's really lay the groundwork to get it done. So very last, last question here, St staying with this chicken and this egg of what needs to be done structurally and what should happen immediately as those structures get built and hopefully maintained. So I think we'd agree that, that drag netting is a, is a tremendous problem and uh, criminalizes people who don't need to be and throws them into the system. If you don't have that and you're really going at the people who are dangerous or disturbed in different ways, in the absence of supportive housing, uh, some sort of functioning full mental health system uh, the, that we didn't have with institutions but certainly have, have not had since, what, what, what should happen with some of these people who are getting arrested, who have extremely long arrest records, who in a couple cases are getting freed right away because this bail reform, as the Post has reported, meant if you don't injure someone, you can't be held no matter what. So you've had people who have tried to shove like a plainclothes officer onto the police tracks, but if they don't succeed in shoving the guy and there's no injury, that person is then released the next day. Do we want to find some ways to remove, possibly by incarcerating, the people who are continuously dangerous? Or, or what should we be doing with those people immediately in the absence of those structures? So one, I just want to, I want to be clear that there is bail still being set, even in some of those cases. Uh, I don't know any specific one, but there are places where bail is being set and people are making bail. And so we have, if we want to have two separate discussions, we should bail and remand. We, but we can't use bail as remand uh, because that's not what bail is for. So we just want to be clear about that. What people want to do is in a backhanded way, remand somebody by putting a bail they can't afford. And that's not what bail is for. We also should just have the court system work faster. Like I'm into that. If somebody did something, they're either guilty or they're not, and let's work with that. But we can't have the court system not working and then say everybody needs to stay in whether they were guilty um, or not. So yes, there has to be accountability for it. Does accountability have to come in the form of as harsh punishment as possible? Or the accountability can come in some restorative practices that people actually look down upon, but are actually evidence-based. And so I am into let's do some new things that we see working like some of the things in, in restorative justice. And if it doesn't work, we could try something else. I'm, I'm, down, I'm into that as well. But what we know what doesn't work. And so throwing all law enforcement tools or something doesn't work. Look, the, when I grew up in the 90s, Rikers Island was about 20-something thousand people. There was a bar. By the, by the logic of 
We got to lock up everybody. We're down to about four, 5,000. Crime should have skyrocketed. And it, it just didn't. But what happens is when, when these things are, uh, there's always going to unfortunately be certain things that happen. Before the pandemic, gun violence was at a historic, almost unsustainable low. Nobody wants to talk about that. But murders and, and gun violence for the city this size were unsustainable lows. And we still had people saying, we have to have more police and we have to have more of this. And so no matter when it's low or high, we, we see the same things. But I don't want anyone to be harmed. And I want there to be accountability for action. But what we've seen is disparate impact on communities. And um, what we've seen is that people are just so focused on punishment, they're not actually focused on actually trying to change that person's behavior or try to change the person who's looking at that person so that they, they don't copy it. I am not opposed to the law enforcement tools. And so there are times where people simply need a timeout. Like you can't be doing what you're doing on the street right now. That it's hard to argue that. What I'm saying is that that is the only tool we have, and that's the only tool we push, especially in the black and brown communities. We don't get the response that we want to get. If we did, you know, many of these problems would have been solved already, and it hasn't been. And so we just have to have some honest conversations, which I'm willing to have. Um, but we, like, you look at what's happening. This is, uh, you know, I have to go, but it's a whole, we should, we, I wish we were talking about school safety. You look at what's happening uh, with school safety, even the conversation. Like I've said, look, you can't fire 5,000 black and brown women. You just can't do it. So we have to figure out a way to have a restorative justice model that can include them, or if it can't, find a place where they uh, have the same salary, the same fringe benefits. But we have to do this. Even a discussion of that has people flipping out. And what I'm saying is, look, we can't stay in a model that was put in 30-something years ago and say there's no other model that we can do because the communities haven't really changed the way we wanted to. So let's aim for the goal and let's work of how we're going to get there. But no, nobody even wants to have that discussion. You just want to stay in a system where people have to go through metal detectors, where NYPD is in schools. And I understand because there are things that, that is, they're responding to. There are certain dangers in certain places that they're responding to. But the question is, how can we do that in another way? And if we can, let's work on it. Let's get to that goal. But you have people pushing back immediately uh, with the most, uh, you know, irresponsible and irrational responses. And it doesn't make sense. I do wish we had more time because that's a huge issue. I know that Scott Stringer brought up uh, as comptroller about taking cops out of schools. When you do have, uh, you know, social workers and guidance counselors bringing up the issue, well, we're not allowed to touch children. So if they're in a physical altercation, who is allowed to like restrain or or what have you? And just like little specifics on how a plan like that is actually going to work, I think is something that New Yorkers would be really interested in knowing the the nitty gritty of. You know, it's not boring granular details these are the things people want to know um yeah uh, but one by the way one i agree with that that there's a conversation needs to happen uh two it doesn't necessarily have to be nypd right there's other uh, adults that can do some of those things and so again it's always well can we got to go to nypd well no we may not have to so let's just have a conversation but two what the questions you're asking are legitimate questions that should be answered it's hard to have that question when people will reject the conversation. <laughs> and that's the problem that I have well, with, with some of the responses uh, that we see. As with the school safety officers, the fundamental fight with the NYPD is that you have people with budgets, salaries, families, and expectations that are baked in. And then once they're there, they become a very powerful advocacy group. And so changing things, even when they're not working 
or they're destructive to the lives of many New Yorkers gets really, really complicated. I believe, by the way, that you have been our most frequent guest and have given this podcast the uh, the most minutes to uh, to date. I just wanted to say thank you. As, as Chrissy would put it, we appreciate you. Um, and uh, it, it's always a, a pleasure having these conversations. I hope they'll continue. Thank you. Me too. I really appreciate that. I appreciate the time here. And, um, you know, just to close out back on something you said that the hate crime, you know, I don't, I, I don't ever want to diminish what that is. I think sometimes feel people don't understand the trauma that can happen to a community and a person who has been a victim of a hate crime, the fear that they have when they go outside, the fear that they may have when their child is going outside or their mother or their father, or their elderly person. So I want to make sure I don't downplay that. And it has to be real response as well. And I'm, I'm happy to work with so many community groups in the AAPI community that are trying to put together models that hopefully will get some funding that uh, doesn't overly rely on NYPD while understanding that there's a role they have to play as well. Uh, but the over-reliance understanding that that can create other harms for communities. So I don't want to make sure I said that, but I appreciate it. Peace and blessings, love and light to everybody. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. F-A-Q. FAQ NYC is a production of Racket Media and a proud member of the Brickhouse Cooperative of Independent Journalists and Artists. We're headquartered at NYU's McSilver Institute for Poverty Policy and Research and recorded this week from the boroughs of Brooklyn and Manhattan. A special thank you to our public advocate, Jamani Williams. Our executive producers, Alex Brooklyn and Adam Kamara, mixed and edited this episode. Be safe, be well, wear a mask, and we shall see you next week. Oh my God, no, that's a line from Willem Dafoe in uh, Wild at Heart. That horrible scene where he's like getting together with like Laura Dern while there's um, throw up on the ground. No, no. (laughs) It's like a David Lynch. It's like a... Why am I so shiny today? Okay, hold on. I'm stopping recording. Yeah, (laughs) let's stop recording. I, I gotta find my... Uh, SD card that goes in the recorder.